Hello and welcome everyone to the NLORM podcast series. I'm Stan Crook. I'm chairman and CEO of NLORM uh, and I'm ho- your host for the podcast series. Today we have uh, a special guest that I'm sure many of you already know. Uh, uh, Gay Grossman is joining me. Gay, her husband Steve and her daughter Lily have been strong supporters of NLORM from uh, the very first. And Lily is a patient that we have accepted for potential treatment at, at NLORM. Gay, uh, welcome. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Stan. I'm really happy to be here to talk to you today. Well, great. Well, it's it's good to see you again. And I'm sure uh, many, many people who are listening already know uh, your history because you've been involved in rare diseases now for, um, well, I suppose since since Lily was born. And um, but um, maybe I'll do a quick rundown and then you can tell us what you're doing these days. I know you've changed jobs recently. Um, uh, as I said, Gay's been involved in in rare diseases for many years and founded the ADC5Y uh, Society, if I recall correctly. And ADC5, uh, ADC5Y5 is an adenyl cyclase that um, that um, uh, particularly gain-of-function mutations cause severe movement disorders. And um, thanks to Gay's efforts and those of others, we know a lot more about this disease today than we did uh, a few years ago. Um, she was uh, head of uh, patient advocacy at, at uh, Neurocrine. Is it Neurocrine? Was that was Neurogene. It? Neurogene. And now has just moved to Citizen, as I, if I understand it correctly, as uh, responsible for patient engagement, if I recall correctly. So, uh, Gay, welcome. Uh, uh, what are you doing these days at Citizen? And uh, what's it? I, I know that's an exciting place. I think uh, one of our other parents works there as well, Kelly Dalby, if I remember correctly. So, tell us about that. I'm yes, very excited to have joined the Citizen team just four weeks ago. And I joined Citizen to help them with their engagement with families. So a lot of the work that is being done at Citizen, um, patient advocacy organizations are joining and they're signing up to have their medical records um, uh, accumulated by Citizen so that patients have access because we all know that patients do own their medical records, but sometimes it's challenging to get those medical records. So Citizen, helps families get those records and put them in the palm of their hand so that if they're traveling around and seeing other physicians, they can share their records widely. They can engage in research with that information. And um, pharmaceutical companies that are studying the disease can also have access to these records if the patient decides to share them. Yeah. Yes. uh, You know, we've been um, involved with Citizen now for a while ourselves. And I think the effort... (coughs) Um, to assure that every, particularly nanorare patient, from my perspective, has full access to all the medical records in a, in a, in a fashion that they can use is really a critical step. And uh, a, a number of our patients benefit from having, you know, very detailed medical histories. It's a shame that a parent or a patient has to do that themselves. And hopefully one of the policy changes that we engineer in the coming years is is a much more thoughtful way of of accumulating medical records and making them accessible to to parents and but uh, I, I I imagine it sounds like you're 
really doing much the same as you did at, at Neurogene, that is in, involved in engaging patients in the process. Yes, working with families is is something that I've always wanted to do and that I, I like to do. I think that, um, you know, my daughter's 26 years old now, and I have been through a lot of the process of, you know, just learning about a, a, the gene that's been identified. Um, as you know, Lily was undiagnosed for 15 years. So in that 15 years, we traveled around to a lot of different institutions. And what I would do is contact them afterwards and try to get the medical records. And some, sometimes it was easier than others. Um, I knew the people in medical records in my, at my local hospital. I knew a woman, you know, first name basis. I would go in every once in a while and I would get all the records copied. Um, I would have them in a notebook. And really at Citizen, what we want to do is enable families to get rid of that notebook and be able to have it electronically so they can share it more easily. But I would go to the local copy store and I would copy those records and I would put them in a big manila envelope and I mailed them to institutions all over the country that were trying to help us. Mm -hmm. um, but it was, you know, it, you can imagine it was a laborious task to try to keep everything organized and um, and just try to make sure that it got to the right place. And and also I was sharing it with, you know, Lily's information on it when when really it should have been de-identified some places that I was sending it. And, you know, we can do that now. Um, but this is one of the advantages, I think, of being in the game for 26 years. Things change. And um, what I can help families do more easily today than what I had to do a couple decades ago is, is something that I really like to do. That sounds wonderful. And you said a couple of very important things that, you know, are very common histories. First, it was 15 years. And of course, Lily uh, benefits from advances in technology um, and the technology to, to genomically sequence to, has come of age and gotten cheaper and more available. Uh, and, but we still believe that the vast majority of nanorare patients are never diagnosed. And um, in, our, in our current, uh, in our first 173 patients, we have um, patients who were, one patient who was diagnosed within a month and another that took 36 years. And uh, our average time is about five years. And uh, obviously, that's vastly too long because that during that time, patients are progressing. And while you were doing all that, you had to try to take care of uh, Lily and manage her health care and, and try to learn what the heck is going on. Uh, 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 when did you first begin to worry that something was wrong with Lily? Well, I was, I remember being concerned when she was about six months old, you know, because she, um, you know, she had trouble even balancing on four extremities, you know, she would, her arms would often collapse and her head would, you know, crash onto the floor and she often had bruises on her forehead. And um, I, the first time I actually have it on paper, she was eight months old. That was when she had her first ear infection and <clears throat> I had taken her for a follow-up. And that was the first time that it was written on paper that I can find that I asked about it. And I remember that appointment clearly that I, I actually sat her down on the exam room floor. And I said, now, now look what she does. And I, I handed Lily a magazine that was hanging on the wall and, and uh, she took the magazine and she, in a very controlled way, rolled back 
and she could hold the magazine in her hands and she could turn the pages. So her dexterity was quite good. But I said to the doctor, you know, it just, it seems like she doesn't want to sit up and she does this all the time. She plays on her back and she can hold a board book and turn the pages like she's doing now, but she just doesn't ever sit up. And she seemed more complacent than, than things were difficult for her. And um, she could stand and hold on to something and, you know, move around, but she would never let go. And she didn't actually start the movements until she was a little bit older. She was probably three years old when she started waking up in the middle of the night. And that's really the, the, the key to this disorder. The, the children or the patients are woken, are, are woken at night because of the movements. And we've actually done the research to prove that it's, it's because they're waking up because of the movements. Um, and as it developed through her body, you know, when she was little, I remember thinking it was a behavioral issue that she just wouldn't go to sleep. And, um, and so, you know, we would, we would watch as she got older and her body got bigger that it almost appeared like the mass of her was getting bigger. So things got more difficult. So, you know, children will use those plastic grocery carts, you know, to walk behind. And, and Lily could do that as long as I put a gallon of water in the bottom of it so that it wouldn't tip. Um, but she could walk with, with doing that, but it just got more difficult as she got older. And the movement started to move from um, her legs and it traveled up her body as the years went on. And um, the worst of it was, um, you know, it got all the way up to her face. And her full body was uh, affected by it before we were able to identify a compound to stop it. Yeah. So going back to the first visit to the pediatrician, what did the how did the pediatrician react to to your concerns? Well, um, you know, I'll tell you the end of the story. I had a lot of pediatricians. <laughs> I um, this pediatrician in particular, uh, she was helpful. She she tried to help us. She did pull out the Denver study and she went through it and she said, well, you know, really the only thing that she's not doing on here is, um, is, is, uh, these gross motor skills, mm -hmm. you know, she's eating correctly. And a lot of times they'll look at how a child is using the muscles in their mouth to identify if there's a problem. And she wasn't having any problems with that. And she could feed herself, you know, on a high chair and, and there was a lot she could do. Um, and this was, again, before the movements had started. So it was really difficult to identify it. But um, when the movement started, that's when I started to really get worried because then it became very clear that something was not just a delay, that there was actually something that was the matter. And, and then I got busy identifying different physicians in my city that saw um, children for, um, you know, like different specialties that were not just a neurologist, but were other specialties that perhaps could help her, you know, an orthopedic who, who could perhaps recommend something that, you know, did she just need some orthotics on her legs? Um, but, you know, early in the years, I think what they tried to do was reassure me as a mother and, and to let me know that, you know, she'll grow out of this and maybe she needs a few physical therapy visits. And of course I did all of those, but yeah. that didn't help. No, and that's, you know, common. And it makes sense because parents do worry about development uh, delays and often the development delays are nothing to worry about. 
And that's one of the real challenges of these patients is recognizing a patient that has something significant going on versus, you know, just the natural variability. And um, when you talk about movements, you, you're really talking about sort of ballistic, uncontrolled movements, I, I suppose. Is that the right way to describe it? That's right. I, I often identify uh, with, I help people picture it. If you picture someone having a seizure, a grand mal seizure, and their body is very stiff and uh, every one of their extremities is um, is affected and it's much, that's what it's like. It's um, her body will actually go through the exact same cycle of movements. So if she's going through a, a time we call the, you know, kind of a time of crisis when these movements will happen, if she wakes up in the middle of the night and I go into her room to help her and her, um, you know, legs are kicking very, very stiffly. And then her left arm will swing around to almost hit her face. Um, I know I can count how long it will last. And I can actually know that the next time I go into her bedroom for a movement to happen, it will go through the same cycle. Her legs will move the same way. Her arm will move the same way and it will last about as long. And, um, and it will go on, you know, all night long. And sometimes these movements will happen. Um, when we were kind of in the thick of it, it would happen eight to 10 times would be typical. That would actually be a, a normal night. And a very bad night would be every five minutes where there would really only be a minute or, or seconds in between and they would last minutes long. Um, you know, and that that was really, really challenging. There's you know, Stan, I used to think of times when I would have the opportunity to talk to someone like you about this, because you can imagine being up all night. I thought about this a lot. And I remember certain parts of this, this series of, of my life then. And I remember hearing on the radio about them, um, you know, sequencing the first genome. And I remember looking at Lily and thinking, I wonder if this is what we'll need to find out what's wrong which is what we did need. And, um, and I remember connecting, you know, my husband and I are very good at networking. We always have been, we've been in sales. And so we are very good at making connections and we would talk to everyone and we would share our story. And, and um, you know, I just remember thinking, what will it take to find the right person who can help? And, and really so many nights I would think to myself that we have just fallen through the system. And we're not able to find anybody to help us. And um, so I just, I never thought it would be 26 years, but I'm glad that it's happened, that we've connected with you and, and those at Enlorem and, and other people who have helped us along the way to get to this point. Yeah, I'm sure that there were many nights when um, despair was about the only emotion you could feel. I certainly know I went through many of those nights with my son and, um, and those are tough. Um, it's tough to be hopeless, I suppose, is the simplest way of saying it, huh? Yeah, I mean, I'm, I I like to-do lists, and it was very challenging for me to have my to-do list get very short because I ran out of options. You bet. And so you mentioned you found a medicine that helped her. Yes. Uh, probably ought to step back. N-acyclase uh, is one of the key... Uh, sets of proteins that you have that you use to respond to stimuli and alter then cellular activity. And 
And uh, among the things that adenylcyclase does is it regulates cyclic AMP levels in neurological cells that control movement. And, and so it, it's, it's, it's a rhythmic kind of problem that uh, Lily and other patients experience. And, and the pattern may be different for different patients, but it will be the same pattern repeated over and over again. And um, being an adenylcyclase, things like uh, caffeine and theophylline and so on can cause potential problems. Uh, so does, does Lily have to watch her, her caffeine intake or anything like that? No, so caffeine's what help, helps her. Mm -hmm. sometimes, and, uh, it helps, sometimes it doesn't, I guess, but anyway. Yeah, so caffeine we've identified as the compound that does help these patients and it works um, much like Ritalin for ADHD, it turns back the overexpressed gene. And uh, although Lily doesn't drink caffeine, she does take it in a capsule form four times a day. Mm -hmm. And if she wakes up in the middle of the night, um, she does the opposite what any of any of us would do. She actually takes a caffeine caffeine capsule, and she will be back to sleep in twenty minutes. Uh -huh. Does she? Uh, uh... You know, a lot of the diazepams are have been used, I guess, right? What, what, is that something that has that's helped her at all? Well, before we really knew the gene, we used a lot of medications that are often used for seizures to mm -hmm. try to dull the movements. And that's what they did was they would dull it, but they never fixed it. It was, um, unfortunately, it would dull her even during the day. And, and really, Stan, we never really realized how how much it was dulling her during the day until we were able to eliminate all of those things. And um, I can tell you that the day that she stopped taking the last one, it was actually when she came home during COVID and she said, I really want to stop taking this. And, and uh, we stopped it. And then the next morning I could honestly see a, it was like her eyes were clear. And I said to her, um, I don't know how you went through school with all of these medications you were taking. And she said, I feel so much different. I feel so much clearer. And I, I just think more clearly. Well, of course, any of us would, but um, all of the families have tried medications like that, but they don't work like, like caffeine and some of the other compounds that have been identified to help. Yeah. And, you know, many of our patients have severe seizure disorders that are unresponsive to all of the seizure medications. And, Sadly, there are no anti-seizure medications that don't have meaningful side effects, including just dulling you. And, right. and, and Lily, of course, is a very bright uh, young lady. Uh, how's she doing these days? She's doing great. She is, uh, she's recently started a, a position at a company called Disability Inn, and they're hired by corporations to help um, help them accommodate the workspace for people with disabilities. So she's really enjoying the, the interaction she's having there at this new company. And she went to UCLA, right? She went to Whittier College Whittier. and she majored in political science and she minored in English. Uh -huh, uh -huh. Well, uh, you know, that's, it's wonderful that she's overcome all those challenges and, and that, that, you and Steve and she are in a very different place from where you were, I'm sure, many years. How did how did you happen to get Lily uh, sequenced? Well, we have always made sure that we 
know what's happening in San Diego with research. And we were able to um, find out about a study that was happening. And, you know, I always say that we learn a lot by families. And I was contacted by a family I know that told me about a research project that was going on locally. And uh, they were doing whole genome sequencing. And my first thought was, oh, geez, this is the time when they're going to tell me that because I didn't have more children, I can't be involved in the study because I don't have a control. You know, I didn't I didn't know how it would be done. And so I called them and I said, um, you know, I want to let you know up front that Lily doesn't have siblings. And she said, um, well, all we need is the trio. And I said, well, I have that. And she said, are you sure you can get the blood from Lily's father? And I said, I'm positive I can get the blood from Lily's father. So we went ahead into the study and um, Lily was patient number one and they were able to identify the gene. Yeah. Uh, And your story is far, far um, more uh, positive than many of the stories we hear. And with... I, I guess the next sort of thing that would be good for to talk about is, you know, what you what are the major lessons that you learned? I, I imagine you're going to say what I believe strongly is that we introduced we must introduce genomic sequencing into newborn evaluations, and we have to do it now, not five years from now, today. But absolutely, I'm I'm, I am. Uh... One of the biggest proponents of genetic testing that you'll find, I, um, it's very challenging for me to hear about the, um, the families that go without genetic testing or the ones that get some genetic testing, but maybe not the right genetic testing, which is why whole genome sequencing is, is so valuable to us. Um, the descriptive diagnoses, I think the, the, you know, we used to get a diagnosis of epilepsy or cerebral palsy or mitochondrial disease, and, and we had to stop there. We didn't have any other options. But today we have genetic sequencing where you can find out what causes the symptoms of cerebral palsy, epilepsy, mitochondrial disease. And I, I think it's so important that parents understand that if you have a diagnosis like dystonia or the ones I previously mentioned, you're not really getting the true diagnosis. You're getting a symptom. And it used to be a diagnosis, but today we can we can know so much more. I've been arguing for quite a number of years that it's time to discard the names of diseases. They're all hundreds of thousands of years old. They're archaic. They don't teach anything. And of course, the, the one plus that nanorare patients have is they have a definable, understandable genetic cause of their disease. And once we have that, we can go to work. Uh, obviously, that's step one. And so um, that is a, a central lesson that I think everyone involved uh, would, 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 would carry forward. And certainly at NLORM, we're trying to drive that banner forward. And sadly, it's happening in lots of countries other than the U.S. right now. And it's time that it happened in the U.S. and hope that day comes soon. When when you had the sequencing, um what 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 did you have to get done before you understood the nature of the mutation? Was it a gain of function mutation? Was it a loss of function mutation? That sort of thing, which is often something that uh, is missing in our applications, and we have to then go try to figure all that out. Yeah, there wasn't a lot known when we got the diagnosis. We we um, 
we went to have a meeting with our neurologist who supported us being in the study. And, um, and we, we knew the name and that was it. We knew ADCY5. We were given one paper about a family that had a facial twitch and we've never been able to find that family. Mm-hmm. Um, we knew that Lily was obviously more affected as she depends on a wheelchair. She needs 24 seven care. And even though she's not affected cognitively, she still needs support physically. So, um, you know, a lot of people still say, and I know you've heard this too, Stan, they still say, well, you know, what's the point of getting a diagnosis if you don't have a treatment? But really, you can't get a treatment if you don't have a diagnosis. So even if, I mean, people want to know what's wrong. People want to know what's wrong. And we were traveling all over trying to find out what was wrong. And, you know, trying to find a diagnosis is one thing. And we were so good at our, at our pitch to try to find this diagnosis. But as soon as we had the diagnosis and we were given this one paper, I remember Steve and I were we said to each other, well, now we need a new pitch. We've got to figure out what this is. And so we really got to work with the first thing that we did was contact the, the authors on the paper and find out if they knew any other families, if they knew anyone doing research. Um, we agreed to any publicity that uh, Scripps translational research wanted to do on our story, and we said you can re- you can connect us with any journalist that you want to, and we will be available to do a story. But you must put a- our website in. We um, we had Lily presented at the Movement Disorder Congress in front of four thousand attendees. We um, had our neurologist share the disease. We were very fortunate to do that because that really opened the doors for us and people started coming out of the woodwork. Um, We were able to connect with one of our lead researchers who's in Paris. And we really sat down to say, how can we find these families? You know, it's hard to do research with one and we only had one, we only had Lily. So we did all of this publicity so that we could find the other 99 families. And we did that. We have, now we have over 300 patients with the gene mutation, the exact variant is much smaller, which is why we're working with you at Enlorem. We don't, we don't have a, a large contingent that have the exact variant that Lily does, but Lily's is the most common. And you know, our hope is that if we can help Lily, then we can help the other few that have the same variant, and then we can help the greater community of ADCY5, and then perhaps we can then overlay that onto other diseases. It's absolutely right, and obvious. And, and I think there's a ton of data also showing that diagnosis saves money, and it also yes. mistreatment and misdiagnosis, which is a very dangerous process that uh, that we see a lot of. And and one of the things that that we're experiencing in in various communities is um, you know real disappointment that they're child isn't the first to get treated. But again, I think the message that you just gave is is absolutely right. Everything we learn applies across the board. And if we can help one patient with or group of patients with a particular uh, variant, we can help others often. And all of that advances an understanding of the disease and also advances making the world aware 
of the problem that these patients have. These are, these are patients who are uncared for by our system today. It's not an indictment of the system. The system was built for common diseases, and this is the opposite end of that spectrum. Uh, any other lessons that you wanna that you wanna share with people? <laughs> After twenty six years, you must have a, you know, you know, a, a giant notebook full of, of 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 important lessons. Well, I think you know one of the things that I try to convey to families that are newly diagnosed and they contact us, and they do contact us all the time. I just had a family reach out to me last night. Actually, I I often wake up and I look at my cell phone and you know. Today, there was a message from a family in Australia, newly diagnosed, and the first thing I want to do is connect them to other families in Australia, which I do. But one of the things that we talk about on the family calls that we have is the drug development process and, and just how challenging it is that this is science. It's not, it's not black and white, and this is still experimental. And I think some families, many families, they get the diagnosis and they think, you know, what's the treatment? Where is the treatment? And when can we have the treatment and a cure? And um, I don't use the word cure. You know, I, I'm, I will be very hopeful if there's a treatment that could help Lily. And I, I know I can't get the 26 years back, but if we can somehow alleviate the symptoms and have her and other people live as typically a life as they can, then I will feel like we've done our job. But I think that, um, you know, a lot of what I do with our foundation and the families that we work with is really educate them about where our place is in the drug development process and doing things like keeping our medical records, you know, and that's what I'm talking about with working with Citizen now is, you know, I'm enrolling my own community in Citizen so that we can get the medical records and we can make sure that we can truly understand the, the retrospective data that's available to all of us without having to travel and go to a study. Um, I'm encouraging families to participate in other studies that we're doing. We're doing a brain imaging study right now. And um, it's, you know, it's, it's challenging to go through studies like that, but that's how we learn about the disease. And if I can just relay that to other families, the importance of what they're going through now and sharing that information, that is what's going to help us with the babies yet to be born who will be born with the same variant. You bet. And you know, um, one of the questions that I had when I began in Lorem was that I knew that the patients, by the time we they would make their way to us, would be very advanced. And as the disease advances, it becomes harder and harder to treat. And um, and and um, but we now, after actually a very limited experience, know unequivocally. That in many cases we can help patients. We 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 have we have one patient with a, a form of ALS who actually died and had to be resuscitated, who's now doing marvelously. And we have another who's improving in multiple domains, not just movement, but so on. And both were extremely advanced. And if we can, and, and we know from Spinraza that if we can get to patients before they become symptomatic, often they'll grow up like normal, healthy human beings. And so, um, and Lorem is the tip of the spear. Treatment is always the tip of the spear. And that we can help some means that others can be helped in due course. And 
I think you said another very important thing, and that is drugs don't cure, they treat. But if you take your Lipitor every day, your risk of heart attacks is dramatically reduced. And um, and I think there's so much misuse of the word cure. Um, and we now, even today with gene therapy, it's clear that it doesn't last forever. So there's really no such thing as a drug today that cures. What we can do is treat, but treatment can be extraordinarily effective. Um, and, and our goal is to get these patients earlier, treat them more effectively and prevent them from having to return from developmental delays, which we're seeing. We're seeing patients who experience developmental delays actually begin to recover some of those. And that, that again, is um, a cause for, I think, substantial hope. Um, and, and, and that's a message that I think ought to get out there and um, we're doing our best to get it out. Um, so, uh, uh, I, I, uh, it's been a really interesting chat for me, uh, and, and very, uh, uh, as it has been every time we've interacted, very, uh, it's a learning process for me, uh, to see all that you've accomplished and had to go through to accomplish it. Uh, any questions for me about NLARM or anything else that's going on? Well, I'd love to hear about a little bit about NLORM, um, today compared to a few years ago, like what kind of things have you been able to abbreviate since you've done this a couple of times <laughs> and how will that affect our experience? Yeah. Well, I think, um, as you know, when I started in LORM, I thought by now we'd have a handful of patients and I'd planned to run in LORM all volunteers for the first two or three years. And, um, you know, the applications are complex and, the first day we we had a website, we had several applications. And so I think the biggest difference is that the demand has been orders of magnitude greater than we expected. And, and we've been able to raise the funds to grow much more rapidly than, than we expected to respond to, to the demand. And so today we, we have about four times the capacity that we had just a year ago. Um, and um, and our goal is from treatment on average, from uh, uh, making the decision to treat to, to actually that first dose, do that in 18 months or less. And that we're not doing that yet. That's very disappointing to me. Just the demand has overwhelmed us. And some, some um, mutations like, lilies are particularly challenging and they take longer, but our goal is 18 months. And we now have expanded enough that we're beginning to work our way through the backlog. And that's very exciting. Um, we've also learned that just finding institutions willing to take care of these patients it, it is a real challenge. And so I think enough, that was a shock, um, but now we've identified multiple institutions and we're identifying more and more that will be available to help our patients. Um, and then this year, I think we can reduce cost and time by about 30%. And, um, and even today, just thanks to all the support that we get, the cost is about 40% less than it would be without support from various vendors. But every minute counts. Every minute counts. And so our goal this year is to cut the, cut the time by 30 minutes, uh, 
And I think there are very straightforward ways to do that. We're, we're moving toward it. And we're also uh, investing now in basic research so that we'll make we'll be able to make better ASOs for allele selective problems and do it faster. So I think we've just begun. And the technology continues to advance and our understanding of how to use it for these patients continues to advance. And as that comes forward, um, we'll be able to treat more patients and we'll do it faster and we'll, be, we'll do it cheaper. It's astonishing that we can talk about treating a patient for a million dollars or so for life. That, that alone is, is, is an amazing achievement and we're doing it, but we can do better. And I think, um, you know, there are a couple of things that are exciting to me about that, that a million dollars sounds like a lot of money, right? But it's not. And I can tell you that we, um, we know that, that that has been spent on just Lily many times over already in her lifetime. So imagine if we could have introduced something like this when she was much younger, but you know, now we're here. The other thing that is very exciting to me is we worked very hard as a foundation to be able to do initial research. And the fact that we were able to coordinate having our fibroblasts sent to Enlorem to help in your research is so exciting to me because it shows that we as parents and our group and the people who helped us get to the point of having those fibroblasts and getting them to you and they're actually being used in order to get us to a treatment is so exciting to me. You bet. You know, we can't do this alone today. We have many, many partners and, and that partnership extends to the FDA. It extends to patients and parents. It extends to all the vendors and companies that support us and all of the donors that support us. And that's the only way we're going to make progress here is link arms and work together to, to, to make fundamental changes in our policies and our processes. And you know, our, one of our goals this year is to really begin to get to insurers to explain to them how much money they could save if, if, if they can help us get to these patients. And you, you know, just end of life care is millions of dollars. Never mind all the misdiagnosis, mistreatment, misreferrals that every one of these patients goes through. Incredible waste of time, incredible waste of human potential, and incredible waste of money. And, and, it, and it all has to change. And I, I think we're beginning to get traction in many, many quarters. And uh, with help uh, from people like you, uh, I'm optimistic that sooner rather than later, we're going to see real changes that help us do better here. I, I agree. And, and we've had a lot of people help us. Uh, you know, the, the company that did the um, fibroblast, they did them for free for us. And, and that's really how we function as a foundation. We work with our uh, the people who advise us, like Nick Shork has been incredibly helpful to us. And anytime we get to the point of next steps and we go back to our board and we say, what do we need next? And, and then our next question always is, who does that? Who does that? And who do you know who does that? And then we go talk to them and we find out how we can do it. And, and, and that's what we did with the fibroblast. So, um, and it was so exciting when we were able to call, um, call that company and say, hey, we actually have a use for them. Can you get them over to Enlorem? And it was just a couple of phone calls and then they were delivered to you. So, um, you know, that's really exciting because all the 
the time that we've put in to learn about this and to get people to work together, it's it's shown that it can work and people do work together. And they, you know, I can't wait until until this comes to fruition and and Lily does have her first dose. Yeah, you know, um, um, I realized late in life that basically I've been a dream merchant most of my most of my career. And um, doing NLARM was not what I planned, <laughs> um, but it has turned out to be, uh, again, infinitely rewarding for me personally. And one of the great privileges I've had is to is to meet so many wonderful uh, patients and parents. And uh, and uh, you and Steve and Lily are in that in in that cohort. So please do uh, say hi to Steve and give Lily a, a hug for me. And uh, and as you know, we're working hard to 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 bring treatment to Lily. We'll keep we'll keep working and we'll get it done. Well, thank you, Stan. I can't thank you enough. And your team has been so helpful to us, and um, we've really enjoyed getting to know everybody. Thanks so much. Thanks, everybody, for listening. Tune in uh, next time for whatever I do next. (laughs) Thank you. And Lorem is a nonprofit committed to discovering and providing personalized experimental treatments for free for life to patients with genetic diseases that affect 1 to 30 patients worldwide, referred to by Enlorem as nano-rare. Many of these patients progress and die without ever achieving a diagnosis. This is where Enlorem comes in. They do the impossible by providing hope and for those that they can help, free lifetime treatment. For more information about Enlorem or today's episode, visit enlorem.org. Any questions can be sent into podcast at enlorem.org. Search Enlorem on Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, LinkedIn, and Facebook to connect with us. Please rate and review the podcast on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen. This truly helps us climb the charts and allows others to find the show. This podcast is hosted by Dr. Stan Crook. Our videographer is John Magnuson of Mighty One Productions. Our producers are John Magnuson and Kira Deneen of DNA Today. Thank you for listening.